you can be offensive all you want, but as long as uh, you know you're not going into some areas where you are prohibited from going into, like you know, inciting people to violence and stuff, or deliberately engaging in falsehood, uttering falsehoods. Mm-hmm. If you're not doing all of that, yeah. So you can be offensive all you want. You'll be you'll be fine under the First Amendment, which gives you a lot of space to swing your arms and you know be offensive and all that. Except that. Welcome back to your weekly dose of transformation. Transform you, family, my transformers. Grab your notebook, your favorite beverage, and get ready to dive deep into real talk, actionable steps, and a whole lot of heart. I'm your guy, Marcus Hart. Have you ever said something on stage or maybe simply on a social media post that landed with a thud or triggered an unexpected backlash. Uh, Today, we're talking about that fine line between being funny and accidentally crossing boundaries, whether you're on a big stage or simply cracking jokes with friends. Our guest, Mr. Carl Unubu, isn't just any lawyer. He's fascinated with the unique world of comedy and fascinating challenges it presents. You see, Carl, he has been at their intersection of show business and the law for years helping comedians stay funny and out of the courtroom with stories some shocking some hilarious featuring folks like dave chappelle and conan o'brien carl reveals the secrets of effective legal humor today he's bringing these legal insights to us think of it as self-defense for your sense of humor recovering boundaries how to protect yourself in this social media era, and most importantly, how to build your resilience for those moments. Get ready to laugh, learn, and transform the way you think about communication. Welcome to the show, Mr. Carl. Thank you, sir. Appreciate being here. Yeah. How was that introduction, by the way? It was great. It was great. Thanks. I'm honored by it. That's great. That's great, uh, Carl. Um, And, you know, I, I know I said, you know, uh, about you know a little bit about yourself, but you know uh, a great deal. You know, and I want to mention to the you know audience too that you know I know you heard lawyer and you automatically thinking that like the book is probably like a uh, very serious. Uh, but the book he already we already talked about it on the other side that is you know very easy to it's a very easy read. You know he he made it uh, for for guys who who are C students like myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Carl, you know, in your own words, tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and uh, about your book that is available on Amazon. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Marcus, for having me. By the way, my name is Carl Unegbo, as Marcus told you, and the book's title is uh, Comedy Goes to Court, When People Stop Laughing and Start Fighting. So um, I am a lawyer and a journalist by training. And, and uh, so the book was written by me as some kind of service to the industry, comedy industry, and then, you know, again, to the broader public out there. And um, despite being a lawyer, this is not a book, again, written for lawyers. It was written by a lawyer, yours sincerely, but it wasn't written for lawyers. It was written for you, comedians and the broader uh, society out there. And uh, you can tell that from the language that the book is written in. It's the kind of language you could see uh, in People Magazine or if you read the New York Post, page six, you know, that kind of simplicity of language, more conversational, you know, colloquial, that, you know, sort of like something 
everyday folks can you know come into. So yeah, so that's where that is at. Uh, but the book um, explains comedy, explains the law to comedians. And um, I wrote the book from my experience covering the comedy industry. Um, I was an editor of a comedy website. We cover comedy. It's a news site called Comedy Beat for like a couple of, oh, up to 10 years. So we covered comedy, visited clubs, talked to comedians, and um, blogged on comedy. So I got to really know the industry very well. And um, on the side, I wrote a blog too, uh, covering uh, you know comedians interfacing with the law. Well, the interface is not some something they chose to do. Uh, it was something that kind of came to them. They were forced into it, so it kind of was awkward. But the interface happened anyway, comedians and the law. And so what, that's what that blog was. And ultimately, this book uh, is a byproduct of that blog. So, you know, I hope uh, that in reading the book, uh, you will take the issue seriously and uh, maybe make, make use of some of the uh, uh, lessons from the book, um, cautionary tales and things. You can make use of them in your daily life, whether you're a comedian or more broadly, uh, a member of our society who cares about issues concerning uh, free speech and the First Amendment and work ideology and council culture. So all those issues and concerns are wrapped into this book. I think you're doing wonderful work, man. You know, by the way, you know, you know, I, like again, I can't thank you uh, enough. You know, I, and I know I said that offline, but I, I definitely want to say it in front of the audience that, like, I believe, you know, um, what you're doing um, for for our country uh, and and for comedians uh, and other entertainers too, and just the, the everyday common folks is is an amazing uh, service. Uh, how did you get hooked up with the comedy world? You know, I know this is a question you hear a lot, and it it, it, it seems like it. You know, the the comedian. Uh, we we think automatically about the clown sitting on the on the stairway, um, crying. Uh, that's the first thing we uh we think of. Uh, <laughs> but like you know, it, you know, it, it just the two don't. It, you don't necessarily necessarily hear the two. You know, uh, paired together, law and, and comedy. I know it's um it's something of um a tale of two uh, strange bedfellows, um if you will. Um well first, how did I get into comedy? Well, I uh studied journalism at Columbia. Uh, and when I was in school at Columbia, we um here in New York City, I uh, occasionally went out to comedy clubs uh to listen to comedy and write about comedians, you know, things of that nature. But um, it was just something for some extracurricular thing for sometimes uh, class submission and things like that. So it wasn't anything serious. It was just, you know, something a student was doing. So fast forward to after I graduated school and then went out there in the world. Uh, so I became a journalist. Then I kind of went back to the law, got my license again, because I, I had been a lawyer in Florida before I came to Columbia. So I got my license again to practice law. And then while I, while I was doing that, some colleagues of mine, former friends friends of mine from uh, the journalism school, said, well, guy, why don't we uh, try to like maybe you know, have um, 
some kind of uh, media news operation, you know, maybe cover comedy. And, you know, the whole thing about comedy really, yeah, it rang, it really stuck out to me, you know, it resonated with me because I had done some stuff in comedy before when I was in school, writing about comedy. So that was why they thought that, yeah, this might appeal to me. And they were right. Uh, you know, I, uh, yeah, I liked the idea. And then so we started this news site called Comedy Beat. And then uh, over time, we were covering comedy. And then during the time I covered comedy, I was also a co-host of um, a program we used to call Comedy Dialogue in New York City. It was a quarter. Yeah. Once every quarter, we had our comedians come to a place, usually in the evenings, uh, you know, over wine and cheese. There'll be lots of talk and things. And then we will have comedians give like 10 minutes each, maybe five or four or five comedians, you know, go to a comedy performance for about like 10 minutes each. And then after that, they will settle down, you know, on a panel and we'll discuss you know, issues that are at the time, whatever issues were current, or, you know, whatever issues were getting traction in the industry at the time. So, you know, they'll have that conversation and then there'll be an audience Q&A. So it was a whole thing. Every once every quarter, right? And we did that for like a bunch of a couple of years. And then, of course, you know, uh, it was during those sessions that I uh, had some of my fans who read my blog. They suggested to me, well, you know, why don't you like, I mean, these subjects you're covering are like really, you know, solid. They are very good. They catch a lot of fire. Why don't we, uh, again, how about you write a book? Everybody writes a book these days. Why not you? You know, so I started to think about it. And uh, so that was how uh, I decided to do it as a service to the industry and in response to, you know, those suggestions and those requests. So that's how the book came about. And that's how uh, I went from comedy into the book. And the rest is history. You can just imagine some of those conversations uh, on that podcast. <laughs> You know, just imagining, like, you know, having, you know, comedians getting 10 minutes apiece, you know, just to say, say whatever they want. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, freely. Exactly. And yeah, in that's, New York that's pretty exciting, man. Yeah. And in New York, too. <laughs> yeah, in, in New York. In New York. <laughs> the Big Apple of all places. <laughs> yeah, all places. Like, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's an incredible you know, journey to, to lead to where you are now. And, you know, it, it really, really does kind of shape, shape where, you know, uh, the, the core of like, you know, uh, how, the, how, the, you know, how, the, how you rolled into the book and, 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 and how we, we have this, you know, it's, it's almost like a, you know, a, a guideline on, on how we can, can, Kind of save like what's kind of happening, what we see now, you know, Carl. You know, in in like when we think about this age of social media, especially, you know, where a misplaced joke can like kind of spiral out of control. Um, what what are some simple things everyone, not just comedians, should keep in mind to avoid like an an accidental, you know, uh, major, you know, something accidental that can cause a major offense. Yeah. Um... Well, um, I wish there was a very simple answer to that. It's just that uh, we live in a society today 
that is undergoing some very fast, very dramatic changes. It is also very polarized and polarizing and getting worse. So it, there is no easy answer to that, except to say that at least one can uh, try to stay within the boundaries that the law permits. So that way you don't get into legal jeopardy. But um, at that point, you might simply have to worry about the court of public opinion, not the court of law. And the court of public opinion is a real problem, like I said, because of the polarization of things. So, um, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, with um, the new council culture situation and work things, um, the boundary lines are not clear. Sometimes, I mean, they, they keep changing. What is work keeps changing. What is work and acceptable? You know, they keep changing. Sometimes um, you don't even recognize that the line is drawn somewhere until you're past the line and people are calling you out for going past the line and you're like, actually, where is the line? You know, that kind of thing. And, the, you know, the, yeah. what is work and what is acceptable, you know, they, it keeps shifting, you know. Mm -hmm. So things that were accepted, maybe sometimes, maybe say 10 years ago, you say those things today, you know, you get in trouble. So, I mean, or maybe five years ago. So the standards keep shifting. But um, especially in our polarized times, and they keep shifting with very serious consequences, you know, career, you know, career destruction, you know, threats and things like that. So it's not, I mean, it's not like they are shifting in a harmless way. No, they are shifting in a way that's really, you know, can get really dangerous for people. Uh, but, you know, um, at, the very, at the very least, one could at least try to stay uh, legit with the law. If you're talking about something, as long as uh, you're not going into the area of incitement, you're, you're not inciting people to violence, or you're not, um, you know, using what they call fighting words, words that could provoke uh, an attack when they are used, and you know, things of that nature. But the thing is, under the law, you don't, you can be offensive all you want, but as long as, uh, you know, you're not going into some areas where you are prohibited from going into, like, you know, inciting people to violence and stuff, or deliberately engaging in falsehood, uttering falsehoods, mm -hmm. if you're not doing all of that, yeah. So you can be offensive all you want, you'll be, you'll be fine under the First Amendment, which gives you a lot of space to swing your arms and, you know, be offensive and all that, except that um, once you go past the red lines drawn by the law, then you could get in trouble. But the good news is, the red lines are drawn very further out. There's a lot of leeway, a lot of room to swing your arms and things like. I mean, you almost have to, um, you almost have to be meaning to break the law before you can break the law when it comes to free speech. The protection is that big, that expensive. So it takes a lot to really, um, you know, go past the lines. Unfortunately, like I said, uh, beyond the law. There is the court of public opinion waiting for you on the other side. And with that kind of court of public opinion, all hell, I mean, all bets are off. You don't know where the lines are from yeah. day to day, and they keep changing. You know, <laughs> what is work <laughs> is never like something, you know, reliably certain. You know, it's like very, very changeable, you know, very dynamic. And that's where the problem arises. What, how can you do, how can you, 
uh, organize your life so you can stay safe from the uh, mob, so to speak. Well, it's not mm-hmm. always easy, but you know it can be done. Unfortunately, it's getting harder and harder. And like I said, I mean, I wish I could have made a simple statement in terms of like, you know, giving you guidelines on how to stay safe from cancel culture and things. I mean, all I can uh, guide you with is, you know, the law itself. But the law itself is yeah. only part of the picture. There is another thing, another world out there beyond the world of the law, which is the world of public opinion, where you have uh, cancel culture and woke ideology operating. And that's, uh, yeah, that's a very challenging environment. And it gets worse. I think that's like probably the biggest problem. It's like, you know, do at what point do we start feeling like we have to start educating the council culture and the lynch mob because it it seems like they have a strong influence in in these courts sometimes it, it, and then you you would think that like judges and and then the then the jury box um don't take what they see on social media into consideration um with like you know these uh different different uh groups that's that's um waving waving these different flags waving these different posters and and you know and um trying to sway uh, sway the sway the jury sway the judge a certain way um is there any way around that other than like you know um maybe the idea of just maybe further educating the masses uh well um i don't know that the masses uh, want to get educated. I mean, they seem to have uh, hardened opinions about this. They seem, see, we we live in a different time today. The era we live in today mm-hmm. is different from where things were even just a generation ago. Today, people are so sensitive. The political correctness uh, situation is really uh, the environment, the environment in which everything else now, you know, has to operate. Whether you're talking about politics. You're talking about music or comedy, you know. So the environment has shifted, you know, dramatically where you um, you have a very sensitive society. People are sensitive about all sorts of things. Usually the goal is to protect vulnerable segments of our society, you know, folks who historically have been uh, oppressed. Maybe they were gay or maybe, you know, they were transgender or they were racial or ethnic minorities, you know, all that sort of stuff, or they were women. So because of the backdrop of our society that has had so much discrimination in the past against various groups. So there are all those groups now that contemporary society feels ought to be protected. And the vehicles for doing this are things like, you know, political correctness, cancellation, you know, this work ideology. So these are like, you know, environmental uh, Things that emerge from the environment, a reaction to what the backdrop has been, and a way to kind of mediate, you know, what happens, you know, in the present and going into the future. So the, the thing, the problem is environmental. Um, if you try to educate the public, ah, the public will probably think they should educate you. You might get, you know, the <laughs> problem if you don't see things their way. Yeah. If you don't believe. If you don't want to get with the program, then you're the problem or part of the problem. So mm-hmm. it's a tough thing. 
But you know, um, yeah. if you're a judge, if you're in the judge, uh, if you're in the arena of uh, judges and jurors and things of that nature, then the, you know, your sector is different. And if you do your job the right way, you're not supposed to be unduly influenced by what the mob is saying on the outside. You know, the mob's problem is the mob's problem, but the law is the law. The law protects you. The law gives you guarantees and things. But the law cannot protect, the law cannot protect you against perhaps negative feelings from your neighbor, for instance, or from the broader society. So that's the problem. And it's always been that way. It's just that it is worse today. But always um, there's the law and then there's society, two different sectors. The things that the law can allow you to do, society may not allow you to do that. Uh, it was always that way, but now it's much more uh, problematic and really consequential because, you know, um, society now, like, they could deny you a job by canceling you, even though the law would not do that to you. The law protects your job, your uh, ability to get a job and keep a job, but the law cannot protect you against society that maybe cancels you. If they don't want to watch your show anymore, or for some reason don't want to patronize your business because of their feeling that, because they feel offended by something you've said or something you've done or something you are alleged to have said or done, then, you know, the law can't really, like, protect you that way. If the public doesn't want to keep dealing with you or patronizing your business or coming to your shows, I don't know if I'm making any sense. You are. Yeah, so that's that's yeah. the problem, you know. Um, there is one, one, one part is the law and the other part is, you know, public opinion. And in America today, that's the real, that's the real problem. The law allows you to do so much. The First Amendment lets you say so many things. If you're, if you're going to be anti-Semitic, for instance, the First Amendment even lets you be anti-Semitic. If you're going to be racist, the First Amendment even lets you be racist. But if you do those things, how will the society, how will the society respond to that? See, that's the problem. If you're racist or anti-Semitic or, you know, you're anti-feminist or whatever, then, you know, you could get in trouble with the society, even though the law would not punish you for those very things. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that's very insightful, and you know, you, you know, it, it shows shows your your huge, you know, your huge understanding of what's happening, and you know, in today's uh, climate, and you know, and you're so right, man. You know, it, it's very unfortunate, and and I, I feel like every day we're walking on hot levels, and and um, <laughs> and I, you know, and and I'm hoping that it doesn't get worse before it before it gets better, you know, so. You know, but, but sometimes when we feeling like we're being stretched, like stretched out like a rubber band, sometimes we got to have that big pop, right, um, right, right, pop back before we can snap back into form. So, but you know, speaking of comedy, so, yeah, though, I, uh -huh. yeah, go ahead. Speaking of no, comedy, no, you, uh, comedians have a particular challenge with this situation because you know, comedians by nature they are folks who talk for a living. They just talk. That's what comedy. You talk for a living. And when you talk, trying to make a joke, a lot of times at the expense of people or at the expense of things in society, well, you're bound to 
you're liable to offend people. And when you offend people, yeah, you attract things like lawsuits and hostile uh, um, reactions and things. And then, you know, when the standards now change, you're supposed to not say some things or they perceive you as punching down. You know, they say you're yeah. punching down. You're attacking a vulnerable people, maybe disabled people or Jews or black people or women, you know, historically uh, marginalized groups. You know, historically marginalized groups. So if you if, if they feel you're you're attacking uh, those groups, then you know they come for you. So the question is, where do you draw the line? It's a good thing for the society to try to, you know, advocate for historically oppressed groups, right? But how far do you go to do that? I mean, do you go overboard as to prevent people from having their constitutional rights to free speech? I mean, where do you draw the line? So yeah, there is something to be said for um, being eager to protect uh, those kinds of groups. But now, does it mean you close off every space for free speech and maybe even jokes and things like that? Well, you know, the jury is still out on that. And you know, as we go into the future, there's a negotiation going on right now in terms of uh, you know, where that line can be drawn. And, you know, comedians can no longer say, well, you know, we should be allowed to say whatever we can, we'd, we'd like to say. Well, you know, that's like the dominant, the prevailing view in the comedy world. You know, they say, well, you know, you can't control us. This is our comedy. You don't want to listen, then you leave. Well, it's easy to say that, except your job your ability to continue to do your job and to make a living could depend on how the public feels about your brand of comedy. Right. So think of it, think of it as like a service. Well, if you're offering a service and they, the consumers, maybe because of um, the influence of council culture and woke people, maybe their mentality has changed, their taste in jokes have changed. For instance, if their if their taste in jokes, you know, has changed because of uh, because of the way they have been conditioned by things like, you know, work ideology and stuff, then it means that as consumers of your product, they may not want to buy your product if it's packaged in a certain way. So if it's packaged, if you're making jokes that they no longer find funny, things they find offensive because they think you're punching down, then it becomes a problem. Now you become like somebody who wants to sell something that the consumers, because their tastes have changed, no longer want to buy. So, you know, for comedians, that presents a real particular problem. The way to like render jokes in a changing environment, you know, cancel culture and things like that. Yeah, because those things are real. They exert a real impact. Not just on comedy, even in politics. If you're a politician, yeah. you say some things that people feel you know, are insensitive or racist or anti-Semitic, you know, your, your career could literally end. Yeah, if you're a musician and, you know, you do a similar thing, yeah, you could face a destructive boycott. So, you know, it's a different society. And in some ways, it's also a scary time, you know, because, you know, you no longer just have to comply with the law. You also have to comply with the public opinion and the changing tastes in public opinion. And like I said, these tests, they keep changing from time to time. Sometimes you don't know, 
you've crossed the line until they start calling you out and you're like, well, I didn't know there was a line here. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I know you deal with a, a, a lot of stories and, I, and I'm quite, I'm wondering, you know, um, speaking of which, since we, you know, kind of, since we are kind of dealing with this right now, you know, um, are there any moments, uh, well, maybe like a, where humor didn't land quite right, where you got a story from a book, from the book where a comedian or a public figure, like kind of bouncing back from like, like that kind of awkwardness where, you know, a humor, where humor didn't land right? Oh, yeah. I have lots of stories in the book, especially in the chapter on free speech, for instance. You know, you had uh, people like Jerry Seinfeld, like one time he, Jerry Seinfeld or Jimmy Kimmel, you know, John. Oliver, oh, yeah. I remember. You know, all those guys. Yeah, there, there are lots of stories about these guys with their humor that didn't land okay, and they got a serious pushback. In some cases, they prevailed, but, you know, it was tough uh, to go through. It was like running the gauntlet of a tough, you know, race, you know, walking over coals, hot coals. Like, you know, let's say Bill Maher one time, I mean, Donald Trump, for instance, sued Bill Maher one time over a joke Bill Maher made about, you know, his birth certificate. You know, he said, uh, Donald Trump's hair was like the had the color of uh, an orange uh, orangutan. You know that those were the two things in life, the two things in nature that have the same color. That Donald Trump was half human, half orangutan. That if he could prove that he's he's uh, the child of two human beings rather than an orangutan and a human being, that he would give him five million dollars. You know that kind of joke. I mean, it was a silly joke, but it was a joke anyway that he made on. Yeah, show. Well, he said he'll give him $5 million. And the backdrop to that story was when Donald Trump said that Obama, Barack Obama, wasn't born in this, in this country, that if Obama could prove, if he could, if he could show his birth certificate, he would give him $5 million. So Bill Maher turned it around on Donald Trump. So well, if you could prove that you're not the son of an orange orangutan and a human woman, I'll give you five, you know, $5 million. You know, that kind of thing. So that was the backdrop of that. And people thought, oh, it was just a joke. Well, guess what? The next week, Donald Trump produces his birth certificate. So well, here is the birth certificate. Pony up. It's $5 million. And people thought it was a joke. When Ma didn't pay, Trump turned around and sued him for $5 million, breach of contract. You know, Donald Trump lost lawsuits. Well, you know, eventually... Well, look, he wasn't going to win that kind of lawsuit. So eventually, on April Fool's Day, 2013, he withdraws the lawsuit, saying, well, you know, he's going to, like, file it again and stuff like that. But it was clear the lawsuit wasn't going anywhere. Now, what is the story there? The lesson is comedians get sued a lot of times for their jokes, sometimes by people who are genuinely offended and looking for money, and other times by people who are not necessarily looking for money, like Donald Trump. But he wanted to teach him a lesson. Make the other, make the comedian spend money. You understand? Make comedian, right. make the comedian spend. And BMA ended up spending a lot of money on lawyers, even though the lawsuit was crazy. It wasn't gonna go anywhere, you know. So that kind of thing is called like a strategic lawsuit. You know, you know, strategic. He's not. He's not looking for money. He's looking to shut the person up. It kind of. It's sort mm -hmm. of like. What happened to John Oliver, too, on his show? 
there was this guy who owned uh, the largest uh, coal company in America, Robert Murray. This was the year after Donald Trump became president. And this another billionaire, Donald Trump's very good friend. So um, John Oliver made a joke about him that the man was uh, uh, trying to undermine uh, mine safety regulations because you know there was this accident that happened in Utah in one of the mines owned by this guy, Robert Murray. And then nine people got killed, something like that. And then the government report said it was because of a violation of mine safety regulations and stuff. But the, the billionaire was saying, no, it was because of an earthquake. So there was that dispute there about the cause of that explosion. Then John Oliver came out and said, no, 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 this guy is a, is a crazy geriatric, uh, you know, bad man. He's uh, against coal industry regulations. And all that, you know, he just mocked him. He said it was a geriatric mm -hmm. Dr. Evil, all that stuff. Well, before the show aired, they called, um, they called John Oliver, so what, you, you shouldn't air this show. Please cease and desist. If you air this episode, we are going to sue you. This is defamation. Oliver said, no, go ahead, sue me, be my guest. I'm going to air this anyway. And he did. Well, and they made good on their threat. They sued him. Yes, so a few weeks down the road, the lawsuit ends. Oliver wants, oh, no, sorry, Oliver wins. But he wasn't celebrating, even though he won. By the time the lawsuit ended, he had uh, paid over $200,000 just in lawyer's fees and things. And his insurance, his, uh, his insurance premiums went up like 300%, like way up. But that, so, but that was the whole, yeah, that was the whole point of the lawsuit. Not to get money from Oliver, but to make him sweat, make him like really suffer through the process. So it was like a strategic lawsuit that sometimes they file against comedians. You know, I'm talking about people who are not even comedians themselves. You know? These are billionaires, Donald Trump, Robert Murray. Yeah. But they come into the comedy space and like try to shut people up. So that's the thing. Comedians make jokes for a living and they offend people well. If you offend people like that in a society like America, where people are addicted to litigation, you're bound to have you're bound to have a lot of lawsuits like this. And I cover so many of them in the book. Both Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Jimmy Kimmel, you know, John Oliver, uh, John, Jim Norton. I mean, so many. Uh, Gary Shandlin, Dave Chappelle, you know, Cat Williams, Jay Leno. Just you name it. It's like it's funny because one of the reviewers of this book, he said, well, if your name is not in this book, then you're not important in comedy. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but, you know, the book has the names of <laughs> whoever you could think about in comedy. Michael Shea, you know, just name it. Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien. Yeah. So everybody's like, you know, gets a share here. You know, David Letterman. Yeah, so um, there are lots of issues here. Some concerning breach of contract, you know, like Howard Stern and their issues, or, you know, just free speech. But the section of free speech and copyright infringement, you know, joke stealing, yeah, those are, I think, the biggest... Uh, yeah, I wanted to bring... I wanted, Sorry to cut you off. I want to bring that up because you, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, Cat Williams, and he, he, was, he recently brought that up in, um, in, in pop culture recently about joke stealing, and um, that was very very um, prevalent just recently. So tell us a little bit more about joke stealing. 
Oh, George and, and how, is, how that's dealt with. Yeah. He's a big uh, fan, an inside baseball kind of uh, fan with, you know, comedians. There's so much, I mean, like, there are two things here when it comes to jokes. And it's like a paradox. One says you shouldn't, the first rule in comedy is you don't steal jokes. That's by Eric Gruber. Then another person says, well, if we could protect our jokes in comedy, he said it's easier to stop a serial thief. Than to, it's easier to stop a serial murderer, a serial killer than um, a joke thief. He yeah. said, yeah, that was uh, yeah, David Brenner. He said it's easier to stop a serial killer than a joke thief. If we could protect our jokes in comedy, I'd be a billionaire today somewhere in Europe, he said. That was David Brenner, a comedy legend. Mm -hmm. So there are those two things, a paradox. One says the first rule in comedy is, is you don't steal jokes. And the other person says, actually, no, in comedy, it's easier to protect, it's easier to catch a serial uh, killer than a joke thief. In other words, stealing jokes in comedy is like just the way it is. It goes par for the course. But so those are the two um, opposing um, ideas about joke stealing in comedy. But the reality is, yeah, it is a serious problem in comedy. It's been there for a long time, and now it's even more serious because comedy today, your joke is like your money in the bank. Because comedy is sort of like serious business, a career. So if somebody steals your jokes, it's like they are stealing your merchandise, you know, something you're selling to make a living. So jokes today are that much more important than they have ever been. And then the places where the platforms for joke-stealing disputes you know, they have increased. For instance, you know, there is now Twitter, you know, former, well, X, formerly Twitter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So there are issues now about joke stealing on Twitter. Like the case of Conan O'Brien, you know, somebody, you know, wrote a joke on Twitter about the Washington Monument. And then the same evening, Conan O'Brien renders the same joke on his show. Well, you know, there are two people here. One is, a guy who doesn't have much public profile. And then Conan has a national profile. So, so if somebody takes your joke, but the person has a bigger profile, a bigger microphone, guess what? You know, it's kind of not fair, but the public will give credit for that joke to that person with a bigger microphone. So, you know, so this guy sues Conan O'Brien. So, uh, you know, you, you stole my joke about the Washington Monument. And then the issue is where Okay, I mean, to say somebody stole to say somebody stole a joke, you have to show that they had access to steal the joke. Yeah. Maybe they saw you, they came to a comedy club where you were performing, and you made the joke, and they stole the joke. Or they, you, know, you have to show that they got the joke from somewhere that they had access to. Well, in today's world of social media, if a joke is on Twitter, that's like proof positive right there. That maybe you saw the yeah, joke yeah. on Twitter. So your issue is now to show that you did not actually steal the joke, even though it was on Twitter, to prove that you came up with the joke independently of the other person. And that's the real dispute there. I think they ended up settling the case. You know, Conan, you know, paid him off and he left, you know. But I mean, as of today, the whole thing is about deny, deny, deny. Conan said he didn't get the joke from. 
uh, this person's uh, Twitter account. But that was how that, that ended. But again, it really points up the issues we have with drug stealing. Or oh, the one with Michael Shea, you know, somebody, a TikTok performer, sues Michael Shea that Michael Shea took her joke on TikTok, you know, about a home girl who helps people solve problems, all that stuff. And Shea is saying, well, no, I didn't. Well, you know, again, you have unequal power here. Shea is a national figure, and this uh, TikTok performer is somebody with a lesser profile. So if uh, if somebody takes your joke with a higher profile and the public gives that person the credit for the joke, then what are your options? What are your remedies? What can you do? Can you sue? If you sue, can you win? You know, those kinds of considerations. But, you know, I covered those cases here too. Or, you know, if it's still a show from, if it's still a joke from Saturday Night Live or something of that nature, and then uh, somebody's saying, well, you stole my joke. Pay me for stealing the joke. So those joke-stealing issues, they are a big thing. Unfortunately, in comedy, um, copyright protection for jokes are not as robust as protection for, let's say, products in other industries, say music or movies. Movies are well protected from copyrights, you know, when it comes to copyright and stuff. For instance, in comedy, you know, the premises of the joke, you know, the setup. The, you have the setup and then you have the punchline. Well, you know, right. what is protected is just the punchline. And then as long as somebody could take the punchline and put the punchline in different words, yeah, he's home free. So... The, the setup, the premises are completely unprotected. And then the punchline is protected in a very limited way. Well, if you go to movies, for instance, the plot line is protected in movies. The plot line yeah. and how the thing ends, these things are all protected. But in comedy, so in comedy, no. So the protection in comedy is very minuscule, small compared to protection in other you know, similar you know, areas. So that's why you have issues of drug stealing and comedy um, being so big as they are. Because, you know, it's just so easy to steal jokes. And the problem is, jokes today have become way more important than they ever have been. Because, you know, jokes today are money, like they have never been before. So it's easier to... It's, so now here's the paradox. Here's the paradox. It's easier than ever before to steal a joke. Yet, the jokes themselves have become more lucrative than ever before. You see what I'm saying? There's that sense that that conflict there, you know. I mean, not, you know. Yeah, I, do, you, I mean, you, you, got, you got people blowing up, like, online, just, you know, yeah. off of, like, you know, Instagram and yeah. TikTok, you know, like you said, you know, off of, like, you know, jokes that have been heard, like, many years ago, and exactly. they send them up differently. Yeah. You know, so they send the jokes up differently, and, you know, uh, but... You know the premise is still there, you know, but like you, you can't, you can't do anything about it. Exactly, exactly, you can't. And jokes are money. Jokes today are big money, mm-hmm. big money, because you know, like I said in the book, you know, comedy today is at a golden age. Comedians now have uh, a much bigger profile, a much bigger profile, and a stronger footprint. You know, on the pop culture, you know, the cultural conversation. I mean, if you saw. Um, John Stewart, he came back the other day on the Daily Show. 
he made these jokes about Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And, you know, the whole, the blogosphere, the internet, every place blew up. Everybody was responding to what he said. I mean, that's how um, significant comedians have become today as, you know, yeah. uh, leaders in the public conversation. They've become more like rock stars. Something you never heard. Yeah, they like the they like the rappers. They like the rappers of the day, right? Something <laughs> you never something you never had. It was just one generation ago. Yeah, yeah, just one generation ago. If your child wanted to become a comedian, you would tell him, no, 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 please go get a good, you know, do something where you can get paid. Don't do comedy. Yeah, but it's a different <laughs> world today. <laughs> it's a different <laughs> world today with comedy. So I mean, they. So they have a higher profile. They, comedy today is like at the golden age. And um, in a place like America, because it's at the golden age, there's money and fame to be made. You know, so they attract a lot of lawsuits. So what you notice when you look at comedy and the comedy landscape is that lawsuits have emerged increasingly as a cost of doing business in comedy. Lawsuits are filed for various reasons. Sometimes people are looking for money to cash in on the fortune of a comedian, you know, to ride their coattails. Or sometimes they are just doing it to shut them up, strategic suits like Donald Trump and Robert Murray. So for all sorts of reasons, you know, comedy being at a golden age today because of the influence comedians have on the pop culture. Yeah, so some people want to, like, shut them up or maybe just make some money from them. You know, so it's a huge, it's a different thing now with um, right. our society, which is so litigious and addicted to litigation. Comedy has become like the shiny new object, you know, for lawsuits <laughs> and people who file lawsuits. So it has become like, uh, you know, a part of what you have to consider on the balance sheet. If you're a comedian, the balance sheet, it has, you know, lawsuits as a factor affecting the bottom line. So those kinds of things. So it's part of uh, the things I cover in the book, you know, comedy goes to court. And, you know, again, like I said, it's not just for comedians alone. It's also about, you know, the broader society. So if somebody like uh, wants to be, you know, is, a, is, a, is an easy read to, even before the law intervenes with the book, there are lots of wonderful stories about what comedians did or what they were doing before they got sued. Those stories in and, on them, in and of themselves are very interesting. You know, stories about, yeah. yeah, why did he get sued? What did he do before he got sued? You know, those stories in the first place about why they got sued and what they were doing, those are very exciting stories that if we didn't even, if we didn't even talk about the law, those stories in and of themselves, yeah, are very engaging and really interesting for the reader out there who wants to maybe read something fun on a beach, at a park, at a mall, you know, that kind of thing. Awesome. You know, so like, you know, like very early on, you, you know, you, you mentioned about like self-defense for our sense of humor. And like when, when we think about like beyond like the obvious legal pitfalls, like are, are there ways that being overly cautious can actually like stifle our creativity and joy? Absolutely, absolutely. And that is the real concern, self-censorship, self-censorship. I mean, if you, if you have to like get in your own head all the time before you render a joke, then it, it becomes a problem. I mean, somebody said a joke that is politically correct is no joke at all. 
you know. Right. So that becomes a real problem. I mean, okay, are we at the point now where we can no longer just take a joke? Or should we like maybe uh, apply these standards of uh, council culture and wokeness to other areas, say, say politics, and not comedy? I mean, is a comedian like, let's say somebody is a member of the U.S. Congress and he's, make, he's having a debate, participating in a debate on the floor of the House about tax policy mm -hmm. or issues of war and peace. Is it the same thing as a guy at a comedy club you know, making a joke, you know. So how seriously do we take these things when it comes to comedy? Can we just say, well, why don't we just have fun and enjoy the jokes and just put those other things aside? Why don't we maybe confine those worries to more serious sectors of life, like politics and things of that nature? Well, if you have to apply the thing to politics, sorry, to comedy, if you have to apply the thing to comedy, rather than politics, then it leads to what they call you know, self-censorship, which kind of makes comedy mm. unfunny, so to speak. You know, it may be okay for a politician to be careful the way he or she talks about things because, you know, um, they govern society, they apply the law, you know, they do more serious stuff. But comedy, people are just trying to be funny, make a joke. Well, should you be as strict with them and rigorous with them as you would be with somebody in politics. So those two things, you know, those are the questions people continue to struggle with. I mean, where should you apply these standards, these new standards of contemporary times, you know, cancel culture, you know, political correctness, wokeness, this, this, um, this sentiment to protect other people, this ethos that are coming up today about protecting the vulnerable in our society, how far should you take it? Who should be the people that you apply these standards to? You know, should they be comedians? So yeah, so that's the thing. Um, with comedy, it leads to self-censorship and, you know, a politically correct joke is no joke. It's, it tends to be unfunny and um, yeah, that's part of the problem today. That is. Then you start second guessing yourself and then you, you lose your true identity of, about who you are as a person. You know, you know, and I think that's 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 the robbery that we are. Um, that's the ultimate crime that we that we're doing, especially when we become a part of the lynch mob. You know, we we robbing people of who they really are. Yeah, you do that. You do that. And um, you deprive the society of the chance to really, you know, get some really good jokes out there. I mean, if people like refrain, if people refrain from going into certain areas, you know, then the jokes are not of the quality that they would have been before. So the enjoyment of the jokes, you know, suffers just as much. You know, so that's the thing. Yeah. But um, again, you know, like I said, it's a matter of balance. It's a matter of balance. You know, how much can society tolerate? How much will they take? I mean, should the society be as sensitive as we have become? And it might be getting worse because every new, um, every new season, they, they add new people that should be protected. You know, I mean, being gay, for instance, being gay was uh, about ten years ago, or maybe fifteen. Making a gay joke yeah. was like, hey, that's you know, risque, whatever. Now, being gay is like nothing. 
it's not about being transgender. That's a new line now. You know, transgender people yeah. and other people who keep getting added. So being gay now is like nothing. Unlike 20 years ago, uh, being gay is okay. We accept that now. Then there are new people coming on all the time that you have to be careful the way you talk about these things. And so, you know, the danger to free speech, those things continue to rise. As new people are added, new people who deserve protection, you know. Yeah, so it's a very, um, it's a different environment today than it was. Question is, can, can this environment remain a place where you can still make jokes? Is it hospitable enough? You know, the jury is still out on that. It is. It'll be very interesting to see what happens, you know. So, so, um, Carl, you know, you know, if there was, um, you know, um, any final words uh, and then, you know, along with those words, you know, like, you know, maybe like a, ch a chapter, you know, what would be your favorite chapter in the book? You know, um, maybe give those, give us those, uh, those words of wisdom and, and just tell us what, what your final, what your favorite chapter of the book would be. Uh, two things, two things. Uh, first, um, first, even those of us who are not comedians, right? All of us who are just everyday people in society, these are what comedians are doing and the fights they get into are very important to us. Comedians, can you can think of them as our uh, proxies, our dogs in the fight about free speech. For instance, um, I mean, it, it, well, a guy like Elon Musk, he said something the other day that I thought, you know, was interesting. I mean, look, I don't agree with the guys. Uh, I don't quite share his uh, worldview, but he said something that I thought was right. He said, like, um, if, if you believe in free speech, if you believe in free speech, you should be able to allow somebody that you don't even like to be able to say something that you don't even like. You know, mm -hmm. if you believe in free speech. You can't allow free speech to be something that happens only when they say something you like or somebody that you like. In other words, you know, if our society is going to remain a free society that believes in the First Amendment, then, you know, we must allow free speech even for those same things that we don't like. And frequently, comedians are those people who say things that tend to offend, you know, the mob. You know, comedians tend to fly very close to the sun. So if we can protect the speech of those who fly closest to the sun, then we can protect the speech of all the rest of us. So the rest of us in society who care about free speech, yeah, comedians are our dog in the fight. They are at the front lines of this fight about protecting free speech uh, in, a, in a new environment of uh, woke ideology and cancel culture. So again, my, uh, my point is, even if you're not a comedian, you should be concerned about the issues uh, that comedians are dealing with today, like free speech. And with respect to this book, um, if you only read one chapter of the book, let's say you don't read too much. You just want to read only one chapter. Yeah, you can read the biggest chapter in the book, which concerns free speech, comedians and the right of free speech. I mean, all the comedians, all the famous comedians out there, they've had one brush or the other with the law, with people suing them about free speech and things like that. And of course, finally, uh, like I said, even if you're not reading the book for the law, you can just read the book for the stories. Lots of wonderful stories about comedians and the things they did before they got sued. And, you know. So even those stories in and of themselves 
are very engaging, a fine read for the beach, for the park, for the mall, wherever you go. So yeah, so again, like you know, like somebody said, um, I think it was Andy Angle, the founder of uh, the Manhattan Comedy School. He said, stand-up comedy is the most fun you can have with your clothes on. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so, true. <laughs> so, yeah, so first can read the <laughs> So first can read the book, at least for that reason, to look at the stories and the jokes and all the things that happened in the book before we even started to talk about the lawsuits and things, you know. Those kind, so mm -hmm. they can just read the stories. Yeah, so. Right. So those two, those two things is what I want to leave them with. You know, the number one, you know, you can just read the stories and enjoy the comedy in the in the stories themselves. Mm -hmm. And then number two, if you care about free speech in our society, you have a dog in the fight over the battle lines in the First Amendment. And comedians are that dog in the fight. They are your dog in that fight. If you can protect them, like I said, people who fly closest to the sun, then you can protect all the rest of us. Love it. I love it, Carl. Man, Carl, Carl, you man, I, I can tell you really love this country. I can tell you really love the rest of this planet. You know, um, you know, man, you know, we, we, we need more people like you. Um yeah, you, you really dropped a lot of jewels on us today. Uh real invaluable stuff, you know, and your book is very invaluable. I really appreciate it, you know. Give us give us on uh, your socials, uh if we want to connect with you. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, so I they can. The website. Wonderful. wonderful. I write a blog. It's called uh, Ocas Law. Uh, yeah, Reflections on Comedy and Other Matters. So if they can go to Ocas Law, uh, HTTPS OcasLaw.com. Okay. And, you know, they can read a lot about my blog. I continue to blog about comedy. Uh, but not everything in the on the blog is in the book. The book contains maybe. Okay. 20% or 25% of what I have on the blog. So if you like reading the book and the issues covered in the book, the blog gives you like a welter of information about these kinds of things. And it covers commentary, not just on the law, but on other issues. Like the one I wrote the other time is about moonlighting in comedy. There was this journalist from NPR in Philadelphia who got fired for moonlighting as a comedian. So those kinds of issues, you know, Social commentary. I have a lot of social commentary on the blog, apart from just law itself. So, yeah. So, if you like the the contents of the book, yeah, you can also get more stuff from the blog. Because it's called um, Ocaslaw dot com. So https dot Ocaslaw dot com. My name is Carl. You put an O at the beginning and S as in Stephen at the end. Ocaslaw dot com. And um, and of course, the book is available on Amazon, at bookstores. It's called um, Comedy Goes to Court, when people stop laughing and start fighting. It's a lot of fun, you know, both for the law and for the general reading. Awesome. All right. So, Carl, before you um, run off to defend the next stand-up star, you know, I got one final question for you. What's the worst dad joke you ever heard that technically might be legal? <laughs> the worst damn joke? Oh. Oh, there are lots of them, you know. Um, well, I could get in trouble talking about it, so maybe I shouldn't, but <laughs> I just leave it there. But if they, if, they right. the, if they read the book, they'll find the book, they'll find that joke somewhere in the middle of the book. So 
with the budget to the pool. Yeah, I'm no, glad you brought good. it up. I'm glad you brought it up. That should be a reason to read the book and find out the answer to that question. <laughs> All right, let's leave our listeners on a cringy but harmless note. Thanks again for making us laugh and thank today. And uh, remember, folks, uh, my Transformers out there, when in doubt, a wild time mean is always safer than a risky joke. Catch us next time on the Transform You Live show. Don't forget to share this wonderful episode with a friend, a family member, an aunt, cousin, whoever it may be. Um, you know, Carl's wonderful people. I'd love to have him again if you chose choose to do so in the in the future. You know, so until next time, many blessings, peace, and lots of love. Thanks for having me.